following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, turn quickly, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, we're going to kind of begin to conclude our service here with just a few minutes in God's Word. Look at a couple things while you're turning. I'm going to tell make a comment that all of our regular Cornerstone people understand. If you're visiting today, I'm sorry, this won't make any sense to you, but I got a funny email yesterday uh, between me and Jordan and Ed and Chris. We were talking about some of the things of the service today, and uh, at some point I became the butt of a joke that they were discussing my wardrobe choices for today and were sending pictures of what they thought that might look like. So I, uh, I made a reference to that in an email response to Jordan, who had been the primary uh, instigator there. And he told me that he was currently at Cole's at the Jesus Rack picking out his new shirt for today. All our Cornerstone people know what that means. No one else will, but I like that. I actually wrote back to him and said, are you serious? And he said no. So I was happy. Here First 1 John chapter 4, we want to just read verses 8 through 10, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer here today. John writes in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, as we take just a few minutes now around your word, help us to see it clearly. Please allow our minds to understand these concepts and the importance and the significance of recognizing that your love is not up to our definition, but is defined by you, and is understood only through the cross. And so, give us that insight today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I um, confessed to you last Easter that I don't love Easter, uh, which always sounds funny to people who hear that for the first time, but I'm not a, a fan of the Easter holiday in general. Not the cultural part I dislike. You know, I, I made a joke that apparently stuck with some people because Nick Skurdy yesterday reminded me of what I said last Easter, which I did not remember. Apparently last year I said that I, I don't hate Easter so much that I go around with baseball bats bashing the heads of Easter bunnies that I see on the side of the road, which is good because I've never done that, just to be completely clear. But uh, it's not the cultural parts that bother me. I don't really care about those pieces. It's the way the church as a whole tends to view what today represents. We, we treat this one particular Sunday is being so much more special than all the other Sundays. And I don't know why that is. It's certainly not biblical. There's no biblical warrant for treating this one particular Sunday as being more important than the others. And quite frankly, I suspect that if we could go back in a time machine to the early church and bring back 5, 10, 20 people to today and let them see how we treat this one Sunday compared to all the others, I think they'd be confused. Because to them, Every Easter, every Sunday was Easter. Every Sunday was Easter. It's the reason they chose to meet on the first day of the week, which, remember, back then was really the first day of the week. This is part of our weekend now. We don't do anything today. We have the day off, most of us. But for them, it was the first day of the week, and so they had to get together very early before their chores, work, whatever responsibilities began to worship the risen Jesus. And so every Sunday would have been Easter to them, and I think that they would think we were weird. But, but as a result, you start to question, why, why do we treat this one day so different? From all the other Sundays, why, why this one? And I think it's because many people are very confused 
about what Easter really is. But that's actually not the problem itself. That's just a symptom of a larger problem. The larger problem, I believe, is that many people are really confused about who God is. And if you don't rightly understand who God is, well, then, of course, you're not going to understand anything else about him, including what this day is really all about. And so I brought you here to 1 John 4 to address this problem, because in verses 8 through 10, you find two wrong views of who God is. Not, not, note this very carefully, not that John is promoting two wrong views of God here, but people use concepts here in these three verses that they then take and use to promote wrong views of God. And so I want to take just a moment and address these wrong views so that we can understand a right view of who God is. In verse 8, we see our first view here. I think you'll understand after you see one uh, example laid out. In verse 8, you see the God of moralism. If you were just to take a pair of scissors and cut verse 8 out of your Bible and go put it on a poster, you could walk around any, any street, any store, anywhere, and pretty much everyone you see would agree with, with verse 8. He says there that uh, God is love. He, and and people, people love that today. They, they love to think of God as being a God of love, a God who loves everybody and everything. He's the kind, cosmic grandpa who just wants to give us all a big hug. He's not the God of anger or wrath who rejects people because of sin. In fact, sin is a bad word because sin indicates that somehow God isn't happy with every single thing we do, that he doesn't love all of us in all the same ways sometimes, that uh, he doesn't like everything about us, and, and that can't possibly be true, right? Many people view God as being nothing more than this, and so because God is love, what then is our obligation as people who love want to be like God, well, our obligation is exactly what John says here, right? That we need to love too. We need to love everybody and everything, and anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. And so they make love and acceptance and all these things, moralism, the greatest virtue of man, to love unconditionally like he does. It's the God of moralism, the God of pop spirituality, the God of religiosity. And it is the God, the God that the majority of people in our world today believe in. You just cut verse 8 out all by itself, divorce it from everything else around it. They would agree with this statement by and large. They like the warm fuzzies that this understanding of God gives them, and that is enough for them. But I'm here to tell you today that this view of God, if all you understand is just verse 8 all by itself, nothing else, is a very confused view of God. Because it doesn't take the time to define, one, who this God is, or two, what kind of love he has for us. If I just say God is love and do no defining, well, you get to fill in all the blanks. You get to determine which God it is who is love and what that love looks like, and that's a problem. We don't want to do that. We want this Bible to help us understand him rightly. So that's a wrong view of God. You, you understand what I'm doing now? Okay, let's, let me show you a second wrong view. The second wrong view is in verse 9. If you, I call this the God of nominal or institutional Christianity. And I'll explain those terms in a moment. The God of nominal and institutional Christianity. In verse 9, nine, John begins to answer one of those two questions I just gave you. Which God is he referring to? Well, it is the God who showed his love, who made it manifest to us by sending his only son into the world so that we could live through him. This is the God John is talking about. Not just any God. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not, not just any God. It's the God who sent Jesus to this earth. 
It's the, and that's good, right? It's good that we understand that. Well, it is, and yet it also isn't. You see, the sad truth of the matter is that there are many, many churches around this country today and around the world who will say a lot of right words this morning. They will talk about God, the right one. They will talk about him sending his son. They will talk about his death on the cross. They will talk about his burial. They will mention the resurrection on that Sunday morning. They'll talk about the need for faith, the reality of salvation, and the hope of eternal life. And nobody, not the person saying it or any of the people hearing it, will be affected one bit. Nothing will happen. They may call themselves Christians, and yet they are not changed or affected by any of those truths that we say are at the very heart of Christianity. They are simply nominal Christians, Christians in name only. They are, they are institutional Christians. They, they root for this team, not all the other teams that are out there. They, 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 they go under this flag, under this banner. If you want to kind of get a rough idea of where they are in the spiritual landscape of our world, this is what they are. We, we're in the Jesus team, whatever that means. It just doesn't change us. And you have to ask the question, why? Why don't those truths which are all true, why don't they change those people? Well, I'll tell you why. Because even though they may have acknowledged right things about God, generally speaking, they've never understood their real need for him. That's what it comes back to. They don't really get it. When they read that God is love, they know which God they're talking about and what he has done, but they don't understand the the love part and how that affects them. They think that God just loves them for them. And as long as they think right things about him, generally speaking, they're good. Nothing more is needed. Again, this is a confused view of God. If all you believed were verses 8 and 9 and you didn't have a real heart change, this isn't, this isn't right. If we want to understand it complete and correctly, we have to go on to verse 10 to not just know who God is, but understand the love that he has for us. And you see that in verse 10. You see the God of the gospel. Not the God of moralism or pop spirituality, religiosity, none of that stuff. Not just simply the God of nominal and institutional Christianity. We're not just trying to call people to our team. We want people to be changed by the gospel. We want them to really know what the gospel is and what and how it affects them. And that's what John defines for us here, this, this love that God actually has for us. And he does it in two ways. He begins by telling us what it isn't. He says, and this is love. If you want to know what it is, here it is. And this is love, not that we love God. So right off the bat, he wants to take the ball completely out of our court. It is not because of you. The kind of love that the Father has for us has nothing to do with us. We're not that lovely. This isn't a quid pro quo relationship where I give you something and you give it back. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this and you're going to give me love back. That's not how it works. So the love he has for us isn't that kind of love. What kind of love is it? Well, this is love that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And if you've been around Cornerstone for any length of time, you know my love of this word propitiation. It's like one of my favorite Bible words that nobody knows the meaning of, right? Great. What is propitiation? Well, here's your quick definition. Then I'll illustrate it like I always do. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the anger or wrath of someone else. Say that again. A a propitiation is a sacrifice, something 
that is going to satisfy the wrath or anger of someone else. And the greatest illustration that will ever exist for this are those old movies that were set on like some South Pacific island where there's a volcano in the middle and the volcano's rumbling and the natives are all scared. And so what do they do in those movies? They go get a virgin, right? And they tie her up and they haul her to the top of the volcano. And if nobody comes to rescue her, where is she headed? Right? The virgin in those movies is a propitiation. She is a sacrifice that is intended to satisfy the wrath of the God. By throwing her in, they're hoping that the God will say, oh, never mind, I just needed that. I'm good, I'm good, and be done. Well, here, God's love for us is defined in relation to this very concept. The reason Jesus was sent to earth was so that he could be the propitiation for our sins, which tells me several, several things about God. One, it tells me that I have, in fact, sinned against him, whether I want to admit that or not. And there are things about me that he doesn't actually like. In fact, he hates. He hates them. He hates them because he's holy. Because God is perfectly righteous and everything that falls short of that perfect righteousness or perfect holiness, everything that violates it, he hates and must punish. He calls those things sin. Number two, it tells me that God always punishes sin. Always. Without a question. I mean, why send Jesus to be the propitiation if he doesn't have to punish sin? If Jesus doesn't have to punish sin, then can't he just like sweep all our sins under the rug and forget them? Why go through all the trouble of coming to earth and dying on a cross? That's not exactly fun. If, if punishment isn't required, this makes no sense. Well, because he can't. He can't just simply brush them under the rug. He has to punish sin. He is angry over our sin. The word propitiation tells us here that there is wrath. There is anger on God's part. That's why this word is so great. Because it's not just that God didn't like them. He's angry. He's filled with wrath. He needs to be satisfied. Something has to do that. Someone has to pay for the sins we've committed against him because this God is not just holy. He's just. He's just. And because he's just, because he always does what's right, right to punish sin, and he will. Number three, it tells me that God doesn't want to punish us. Because he loved us. This is love. You want to know love? This is love. Not that you love him, but because he loved us, not for our sakes, for his, he sends his own son to be the propitiation. God provides himself as the sacrifice. In other words, he doesn't ask us to make it, right? Which is good because can we? No. If you've sinned against a perfect, holy being, what sacrifice can you offer him? (laughs) What, what do you have to give? If you're going to make it up, you've got to give him a perfectly holy sacrifice. Do you have one in your back pocket? I don't. So if we don't have one, what hope do we have? Well, the hope we have is in Jesus because God gives his own sacrifice. He, he provides his own propitiation, something that would satisfy himself, something that was perfectly holy. And so on the cross, Jesus sacrifices himself for us so that he could be the propitiation. Sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God towards us. That's what his blood is doing, which tells me then, finally, number four, that through this then, we can have a real relationship with God. Not, not one of pop spirituality, not, not an Oprah kind of religiosity that just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I'm talking real. 
where, where the God who was angry with me before will no longer be angry with me, not because of what I've done, quite the opposite, because of what Jesus has done, because of his sacrifice on my, half, my behalf, that this thing we call Christianity, it doesn't have to be nominal. It doesn't have to be institutional. It can be real. All he asks is that we place our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Now, these, these are three different, very different views of God, are they not? And you just look around at the world today and the people you talk to, and you will find people who fall in all these camps. Even in a room this size, I am confident that there are people probably from all three of these groups. Some of you have a view of God that just says, well, he's love. God is love. It doesn't matter. He loves everybody, everything. We're all good. I'm telling you, you're confused. You don't know who this God is you're referring to, and you don't understand the love that he has for you. He is love. You're right. You need to define that and understand it correctly if you're going to have a right view of him. God hates sin, and he will punish sinners. And You will only begin to understand that when you begin to view him and his love for you through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the cross. I'm sure others in here have a view of God that's similar to the second one. You're Christian in a nominal and institutional sense only as your team. Right? You're rooting for that team. It's March Madness right here in Easter. So you're under this team. You, you, you want to be identified in some way with that, but you don't, you've never really been changed by it. I'm telling you today, that's not enough. Jesus one time was, was uh, excuse me, in James, the book of James, James is responding to people who are saying, well, I believe right things about God. He's like, that's great. The demons also believe and they tremble. Demons know right things about God. That doesn't save them. And so it's not simply what we know, it's what we have been changed. It's not just a, a team to root for, an ideology to embrace out here in, a, in an intellectual way. It's a fundamental change of life that we're talking about. That's what the gospel is and what it does for us. Jesus' sacrifice was for you because you need it. You need it. And he's calling you to faith and repentance today. And so while I may not care for Easter, generally speaking as a holiday, I, I make no apologies for that. I do like it in this one sense because this is one of the probably the primary time each year when almost everybody in America at least takes a moment to stop and think about who in the world this guy is. It takes a moment just to stop and go, okay, it's somehow about him. I, my nephew, my nephew's three, four, talking to uh, Jamie's mom. And he was, she was asking him, so what's Easter about? And he said, it's about the Easter money. And she said, no, it's about Jesus dying on the cross. And later that day, Jamie's brother comes home, his dad, and talking about what Grandma said to him. And apparently he tells him that Easter is about Jesus killing the Easter bunny. All right. At least he's thinking about it. You know, I'm happy for Easter in that sense. At least we're thinking about it. At least we've got something in our minds here. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Where are you with Jesus, who Jesus is? Where are you with who God is? Your wrong views of God need to get abandoned, and you need to turn to him today in faith. If you will, just bow your head for a moment. We're done here. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or do anything else. I'm just going to ask a couple of quick questions, and then I'm going to pray. What do you believe about God? This is not a, an esoteric or purely theological question. It's a question that is at the very core of your eternity. What do you really believe about God? Have you defined him however you wanted? I'm telling you, that is not sufficient. If, if this book that we call the scriptures is what it claims to be, these are God's words, he's already defined himself. What do you really believe? And then what do you believe about Jesus? Because you can have right thoughts about God and never be changed. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and he is calling you today. He wants you to place all your hope in him alone. Abandon all hope in any other source. If you do that, he will save you. He will forgive you. He will make you his own. And that would make you feel truly special for you today. Father, you know every soul in this room. I don't. You know where everybody is. You know what they believe. And and at the root of all of us, you have made our beliefs about you the most important thing. Many people believe in you, but not in the way you've defined yourself. They want to define you just as a God of love who loves everybody, everything, and not who you are. You're holy. You hate sin. And you will punish sinners. We know that. So it's more than just your love. Your, we, we need to understand you correctly, your love correctly. Others just think if they know some of the right things and identify with the scheme, they're good. But it's not true either. The gospel was not merely a, a course in education for us. So just to fill us with facts, it was here to change our lives. And they've never been changed. And so Jesus, if If there's anyone in this room this morning who does not know you as their Savior, if they've been coming for some time or if they're brand new, I don't care. I pray that today you will open their eyes to the gospel, to the fact that you have sent your Son, that your wrath was against us because of our sin, what we personally, individually have done against you, but that because you love us, you made a way. You made a propitiation, a sacrifice that would satisfy your wrath. It wasn't our righteousness. It wasn't anything we could do. It was was in your perfect Holy Son. And in his blood, we now find forgiveness. Will you turn the hearts of anyone in here today who does not know you as their Savior to faith, to believe that message, that truth? You are calling them. We are calling them. Only your spirit can open their eyes. For those in here who do believe that, we thank you for what this Sunday and every Sunday represents. We serve a risen Savior. We we aren't here trumpeting a a message of make you feel good and happy and, and send you home with three easy points. We're here trumpeting a message of life, of truth. If what we say about you is true, this is the only truth this world needs and will ever really find. And so, Jesus, help us to be bold in that proclamation and faithful and persevering in it. We love you. We thank you that the cross could not be your end, that the grave could not be your end. We thank you that on that third day, you rose from the dead. Now sit at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come again. We love you, Jesus.